0: So, uh, I have with me today uh, the two authors of *Shallow Waters*, which appeared in the *Texas Observer* and *Quartz*. Navina Sadavism and Zoe Schlanger. And did I did I mutilate both of your names?
1: <laughs> it's Navina Sadavism, so
2: <laughs> but
0: close. You got mine pretty good. Okay, good, good. So. Uh, Thank you for joining me in the first official, uh, Texas Plus Water podcast. And, uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I read the nine-part series and really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, as you'll, you'll find out, um, there are a lot of, a lot of areas and issues that we have kind of tracked each other on. I realized that's how I was reading it. And, uh. For example, one of the things that that uh stood out to me is I was uh one of the reviewers for uh the new book A Thirsty Land. Mm-hmm. And uh of course Seamus McGraw's the author of that book, and you know, he was in that book in part uh writing about issues uh along the border and out in West Texas. And so Uh, You know, I had a little refresher on some of the issues affecting that part of the state uh, prior to to reading this series. So let's just start off a little bit uh, with some background here. And uh, I'd just like to hear from both of you, uh, you know, why you decided to write about water and climate change along the Texas-Mexico border. You know, what was the real catalyst for that?
2: Sure. Well, I could start with that. Um, uh, This is Zoe Schlanger at Quartz. Um, So we, at Quartz, me and my my, uh, editor, Elijah Wolfson were looking into a grant that was going to fund a journalism piece that would be a collaboration between a global newsroom and a more regional newsroom. Um, And we're trying to think about ideas, and I I cover the environment. Um, So we're looking in that general area of climate change. And we started looking at different places in the U.S. that might have an undercovered climate story. So we are looking at increased rainfall, let's say, in the, the northeast over time, um, and then aridity in other parts of the country. And we really zoomed in on the border between Texas and Mexico, in part because it's one of the fastest forming regions in the U.S., and uh, secondly, because it's a place where people seem to believe in climate change disproportionately compared to their neighbors in the states, so the county along uh, the border between Texas and Mexico in Texas. Seem to have a much clearer idea um, about climate change that's happening. That they believe climate change is much more than um, people more interior in the in state Texas. So we thought that was interesting. Um, and then clearly the the border dynamics there uh, have global importance, certainly national importance. Um, and there's a lot of good regional work being done on that. Um, and so it just came naturally down to thinking about water. And that's when we uh, reached out to Nivina and her editor and started coming up with some ideas. Yeah, and um,
1: Zoe and Elijah, the editor at Quartz, approached us at that point, uh, you know, and wanted to talk about climate change along the border and how that affects water resources. And so we had numerous um, calls just talking about that broad topic and how we wanted to focus and what we would, Bring that was new uh, to the table, um, and so 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 that's kind of where we started. Uh, I was uh, fairly interested in the border and writing about water issues along the border because I had written quite a bit about water already. I had covered, um, I, I'd researched the Colorado River when I was uh, at ProPublica previously, and so I had a fairly uh, strong interest in water issues. And so this uh, this project idea just fit perfectly in with my interests.
0: Yeah. So, what uh, what surprised you most uh, during your research? And um, you know, I'm I'm curious about also whether did did y'all actually travel to the border at one point, or did you you know essentially do this uh, from um, I guess Austin and New York? So, uh, do you want
2: to go first? <laughs> about what surprised at least me the most. I think that the biggest topic, the biggest overarching meta theme that surprised me is how completely unregulated most water at borders is. Um, And we're hearing a lot about, you know, a world without water or with less water given climate change in the future. And there's so many um, places globally where there's water at borders and no international treaty to handle it. Um, And Far fewer treaties to deal with groundwater, and there's some attention on border surface water. So, first of all, that it just seems like a tick, uh, ticking time bomb now that um, we know much more about it and the situation and how dire it is in some places. Um, so, that being a huge geopolitical issue that I never saw come up in the news cycle very much um, seems really surprising to me. I'd also say uh, you know, one of the things, one of the stories I was working on was about um, El Paso and the, the water infrastructure there. And it was pretty remarkable to see El Paso be one of the leaders um, in terms of cutting-edge water technology in the country, uh, which makes a lot more sense when you realize they just sort of have to be there. They really, there really has been a dire need to figure out um, out-of-the-back solutions dealing with water scarcity and border water. They share an aquifer with Ciudad Juarez, but that was kind of a fun realization to realize that El Paso is the center of a lot of water technology right now.
1: Yeah, uh, one of the things that really surprised me, uh, you know, when I was in the valley and I was reporting about uh, farmers um, and urban folks fighting over water uh, from the Rio Grande, I began to notice sort of a pattern uh, with the farmers that I was talking to. Uh, I knew that the valley was predominantly Hispanic, but uh, the large number of uh, farmers and irrigation district managers that I talked to were, were predominantly white. And I began to wonder why that was. And when I looked into the statistics, I found out that the population is heavily Hispanic. It's over 90% Hispanic in the valley. Uh, but 75% of the farmland in the region is uh, owned by white farmers. And so that came as a huge surprise. Um, and my curiosity about how that came to be and why that was led to one of the sidebars, it's one of the nine uh, pieces in the project, uh, is examining the history of the valley and, and how the how the racial dynamics. Played
0: out over the years. So, uh, let me ask you this: What's the, been the general reaction? What kind of feedback have you got? I mean, obviously, you know, I made it clear that I really, really like the series. But uh, what have you heard from other people?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, we the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I would say, uh, you know, our I. I i speak for myself, my, my intention with this project was to sort of explain a really uh, complex Water system in the region in along the Texas Mexico border to a lay audience. So I wanted the stories to be interesting enough to a person who had never really considered uh, water as a uh, water issues as being political. Um, had never thought about how how maybe they turn on the tap uh, and get water. Um, and so so it was really meant for a lay audience, and I think it reached. Uh, a, a fairly wide audience partly because of the visuals that we had the mm-hmm. the way the stories were written um, uh, you, you know it was often narrative driven you had characters um, interesting people that you could latch on to even if the co- issues themselves were very technical and complex you had interesting folks uh, that we spoke to that are in the stories um, and so in that sense i think it's been widely read uh, i don't know what the metrics are on our website and I don't recall uh, you know, I, I think we checked them about a month in and I just, I'm not recalling now uh, what those numbers were but I remember we had fairly good readership on those stories um, on Twitter on social media the stories got shared widely uh, both Zoe and I were invited on uh, numerous radio shows so we went on PBS NewsHour to talk about it so I think the stories got disseminated fairly widely um, and so uh, that, that was the intention the idea was to get these up uh, St- these uh, these issues in front of a lay audience and I think on that front we succeeded.
2: Yeah, I completely agree um, with everything Naveena said and I'll just say, I mean, perhaps as many uh, water experts might be aware it, it, water is structure things like groundwater, the kind of arcane way water rights get uh, split up, these are some of the least sexy topics for a wider office yeah. audience, people who are not complete water nerds um, and so yeah, I think I would definitely count it as a real win that there was, um, you know, radio producers interested in booking us. That there was a pretty good readership, a lot of chatter on Twitter.
0: People were engaging, which was um, great to see. Yeah. Did uh, have you gotten any feedback from, uh, you know, decision makers, people who run water districts or or uh, water agencies or folks from the legislature or from Congress? You've got any? Uh, feedback from any of those venues?
1: Yeah, I think we we got a few emails, a few tweets. Um, Senator Jose Rodriguez, for instance, uh, from the El Paso area has been consistently tweeting out our stories, and I got uh, an email from one of his staffers thanking me for working on the project um, and for writing these stories. Um, And we also, I think, saw uh, the Mexican consulate in Austin, uh, tweeting and and sharing the stories, um, and, and we got a few emails uh, from from uh, from folks from Irrigation District managers, for instance, uh, thanking us for writing stories, taking an in depth look at these issues, and helping people understand how complex really uh, these things, uh, the management of the Rio Grande is. Um,
2: so, yeah,
1: that's that's what I heard, Zoe. What did you hear?
2: Yeah, I think that you mentioned that. I guess one other person in a, corpor- a sort of a decision-making position um, decision is the person who deals with border affairs at TC. Right. right. Also treated it. Um, but yeah. Thank mm-hmm.
0: you, covered it. So um, I'm thinking here that, uh, you know, you you kind of took a look at a situation that's very complicated uh, in terms of just the, the water issues. I mean, the water issues on the Rio Grande, are different than anywhere else in the state of Texas, and the way Texas handles water is different than pretty much any, you know, other state, uh, handles water, and what, uh, impressed me was that, you know, you know, Zoe being in New York, and Nabina being in Austin, and maybe, you know, not being in Texas that long, I mean, you, you really figured out how the system works quickly and were able to to get into the details of the issues um, that uh, you know in a way that was uh, you know complex and 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 had great depth to it and that's one of the things that that stood out to me because uh, I was thinking about you know how how hard it would be for example for me to um, you know write about uh, water issue in another country or even you know another state some states are um you know mm-hmm. more complex than others and how they manage their water um and so you know talk to me a little bit about um you know what process or whether you w- went through a process maybe you didn't uh, of of understanding the system yeah i mean yeah i
2: appreciate you you it, coming off that way, and I'm glad you feel that way about the thesis, thank you God. Um But I would say, this is definitely our job, it's both, both like the, the joy and the terror of being journalists it's jumping into areas <laughs> <laughs> where you don't have you know, so much prior expertise. Both Padina and I have been covering the environment for a while, um, so we do have a general familiarity with a lot of, some of these issues, but in terms of me reporting, um, you know, Based in New York and covering water issues in the state with very specific, like you said, water water um, management practices that are unique in the country and the world. Um, I think it it's the driving fear of most journalists that they might get something wrong. Um, so at least uh, what I did, and I think Navina does this as well, is um, what some people call over reporting, where you just keep calling people, and make sure you've talked to the people who know what they're talking about, read the right papers. Um, we've talked to it combined. We have a huge Google Doc that we use to organize this project because collaborating means tons and tons of documents between people, um, where we kept all of our transcripts from our interviews, and I, I don't know how many are in there, but it certainly felt to me like we spoke to well over 50 people, if not more. Um, yeah job it is to, it, or lifetime work it has been to understand Texas water issues and Mexican water issues and border dynamics. So yeah, it's just a matter of reporting. It's a total blessing to have a job like this, but um, yeah, it's, a, it's fun and also scary, and we just do our best.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Zoe said about just a the- fear of being a fear of getting it wrong um i think my my worst nightmare is working on a project for six months eight months and then for it to come out and be ridiculed or to get angry emails from you know uh the folks who care about these issues a lot telling me that i got it completely wrong so it's very validating to hear from you that you thought we did we did okay
0: <laughs> you did um,
1: There's a there's a ton of overreporting, and you asked earlier about whether we traveled uh, to the places that we reported on. We absolutely did. We were in in El Paso for a water conference, a binational water conference, and so we got to meet a lot of the decision makers face to face. The IBWC commissioners were there. Ed Archuleta, um, you know, who uh, I, I believe he was El Paso Water's uh, manager for for a mm-hmm. long time, and, and heralded uh, that that group uh, into you know, conserving water, Um, he was also there. And so we met a lot of these folks face to face. Uh, We had long, long, long conversations with them over the phone. I went down to the valley for about a week and I stayed there and I met with irrigation district managers and they drove me around the district and I hung out with them for, you know, entire days, just watching them work and asking them questions over and over and over again in a hundred different ways, making sure that I understood exactly Um, uh, how they worked and what what their responsibilities were um, and what they thought of these issues. Uh, So it was uh, definitely over-reporting, meeting face-to-face with people um, and, uh, you know, the the driving fear of getting it wrong. (laughs) And a lot of fact-checking. Yes. Yes. And I will add that we, uh, The Observer, uh, my editor is a Texan. He was born and raised in Texas, um, and he covered the environment uh, before he became an editor. So he brought a lot of expertise um, and a keen eye to this project, I think. Um, and so that, that helps quite a bit when you have someone looking over your shoulder and making sure that you're not making uh, some egregious mistake.
0: So I came within a whisker of joining you at that conference in El Paso. I was mm-hmm. I was in Reno uh doing a 3-day workshop for for judges that have water litigation. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, it's it's the National Judicial College is located in Reno. And so uh you know, I was asked to come up there uh with some other presenters and uh you know, talk about uh, you know, water litigation and uh, resolution of cases through mediation and things like that. And I was leaving and I was looking at the the one in El Paso and I was thinking, I wonder if I can get, if I can actually get back in Texas and take a flight and get down there, you know, before most of it's not over. And the answer was no, unfortunately. So, um, so let me uh, ask you about this. And so... Uh, In the interest of of full disclosure, uh, I actually am part of a a company that Aaron Wolf is also part of. Um, We are both part of a group called Four Worlds Partners, which is essentially a group of mediators who do water mediation. Mm -hmm. And uh, except for myself... Aaron and the other partners are all located in Corvallis at Oregon State University. So, uh, I was, you know, interested uh, when I was reading, um, you know, the information you had uh, from Aaron and his studies on uh, how, you know, really uh, cooperation is is much more common than conflict uh, in terms of. Uh, water issues around the world when you when you first heard that what was your reaction because it's you know my you know my sense is that that people really don't know that
2: yeah um i think that our first story our opening started is looking at this macro issue of water at water, uh, water at water globally um and yeah Aaron's research seemed really pertinent to that because Uh, Like you said, he found that something like two out of every three actions, no matter what they are, um, border water are collaborative rather than um, conflict-based or progressive. And that's a fascinating context. I mean, what he's saying is that um, the world sort of looks away too soon when there's some kind of conflict that's sparked regarding water at borders, and that if people continue to attention, if media, say, or here's the public interest, stayed on. Um, whether or not people are or how uh, conversations over border water are going even if there's initial conflict, they tend to resolve and that water is one of the strongest drivers of cooperation that we have at the moment so that means um, totally to run counter to the narrative that uh, I, I believed before setting out this project that um, as the world forms as water resources clean, that will be um, launched to total chaos in a way but uh, it sounds a lot more like there's a major opportunity for uh, collaboration if people acknowledge issues and Um And we heard this from other experts as well, but kind of the best antidote for potential future conflict is good science. Um, and in places where there's good science starting up, there's probably a lot less chance of major conflict in the future. And that's definitely something we're seeing at the U.S.-Mexico border, especially with Things like the the survey of groundwater aquifers that is happening between the U.S. and Mexico with aquifers on the border. Um, These are all things that will prevent a future uh, run on water, which is what people expect to happen.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I will say as a journalist, I think the longer you are a journalist, the more cynical you become. And so when we okay. first uh, embarked on this project, I was very much expecting this the, those stories to be of about conflict, about people okay. disagreeing and people fighting over water, because that was, like Zoe's saying, uh, the overarching narrative that I had heard over and over and over again. You know, there, there's that, that saying that whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over, and so okay. it, it almost it seemed like uh you know fights over water are inevitable uh that like like zoe was saying as as the world warms that we're going to be thrown into chaos and there'll be more fights uh over water but i think zoe was the one who found the research and talked to aaron uh and kind of backed up the fact that there is more cooperation and you know when, when we were talking about that it was it was very surprising and it completely uh changed my perspective on water issues and how i thought about them um You know, I think one of the things that we saw over and over again is that humans tend to adapt, that when there are problems, uh, you know, humans respond to them. And whether that's trying to find new sources of water through desalination or toilet to tap, um, you know, there, there are challenges, of course, with managing water, but there are also solutions to them. And, you know, there are very smart people thinking about how to find those fixes. So give me a little bit of hope, actually, in reporting this project. Definitely,
0: definitely, yeah. You know, I think, <clears throat> I think, what is not maybe readily apparent when when people think about that issue is that, you know, a lot of these water issues are very difficult and expensive and require you to sit down with people that you you don't normally sit down with, and uh, you know, there's the initial kind of burst of of uh, um, you know. Discordance or or fighting or arguing, you know, usually has to precede, you know, anything that's productive that uh, comes later. I mean, we have we have a water planning process in the, in the state of Texas, which we we've, uh, we've had water planning in the state for for about almost seventy years. Uh, but uh, you know, many of the issues that the regional water planning groups deal with are are not nearly as contentious as say. The Edwards ockford issue, or uh, the issue with the Rio Grande, or 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 someplace else, and so uh, it's you know these big issues that the people just kind of avoid because they think oh that's never going to be resolved or uh, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Seems like you know it's it's got to get some kind of push. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so yeah. I think, I mean, just to add to that, one other surprising thing we found while recording
2: this is just how much water-making decisions um, come down to individual personalities mm-hmm. uh, and how much relationships, one-on-one or, you know, team-on-team relationships between people in charge of doing this type of water diplomacy seem to make such a radical difference. i uh, hearing a lot about how the IBWC's relationship is different, say, than... Um, Uh, the relationship between water managers in the Middle East, in places where where water bodies are shared, um, the way that the IBWC seems to meet extremely frequently, and as one of the commissioners told us, you know, how important it is to ask about the other five grandkids and drink whiskey together and talk about things that aren't water-related, to be able to keep that possibility for cooperation uh, going when there's there's times that
1: exactly. you got to build trust before you can actually do the work. Um, and I think, you know, uh, with the challenges that come with climate change in a warming world, uh, I think that's pushing people to work together too. Uh, you know, the fact that the Rio Grande is, is drying up, uh, the snow has decreased by 20% in the last 50 years, evaporation rates are increasing, all of that means that there's less water to Go uh, between everybody uh, who needs it. So you, you know, I think it's imperative that people work together
0: to figure out solutions. So yeah. I'm here in my office, and I'm looking at the the photo, the portrait photo we took of the stakeholders for the Edwards for Habitat Conservation Plan, um, the day that we all agreed on a plan, which it, which took five years of of meeting and negotiating, and. And most of those, or many of those people in that photo, you know, couldn't stand to be in the same room with the other person when we started. And they, you know, we'd been suing each other over and over, and we'd been fighting in the legislature every session. And, uh, you know, because we met every month for five years and then had subcommittee and workshop, work group committee meetings in between, you know people got to know each other, and we'd have lunch together during those meetings and we even had a couple of retreats where uh you know some of the members played music and you know we all went to a bar and and you know all so all those things that you just talked about you know I've seen that actually happen and and it's it really is critical when you when you can i mean when the The person on the other side of the board or or on the other side of the room uh, is kind of a uh, figure without a whole lot of detail in your mind. And you don't know them. You don't know anything about them. It's much easier to vilify them uh, than it is after you really sat down and got to know somebody as you indicated.
1: Right, if you're sharing meals with someone, if you're you know, singing karaoke with them or playing music with them, I think you start seeing them as a full human being. Um, and so I guess that 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 makes room for trust and uh a relationship before you start working on those difficult
2: challenges. Uh Definitely.
0: So uh, I have to mention this before I forget. Um, I've been trying to encourage the creation of a water library here in texas to preserve documents related to uh, planning of water projects and major water litigation and and things of that nature but uh you know i will hope i hope that all that documentation you you mentioned earlier and interviews and all that i hope you all hope you all preserve that uh and someday you never know maybe uh we'll get that water library going and and there might be a home for it.
2: Well, I'm I'm pro archive of every kind, so that sounds great.
1: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. We have all of our files and interviews and everything else uh, in one shared Google Drive, so it should be fairly easy to archive that.
2: Totally.
0: So you know that's very high tech for me. You know, I'm just barely able to do this podcast, and we've got <laughs> all that put together like that so let me so let me fast forward to today and ask you about something so uh texas and new mexico of course are suing each other uh before the supreme court and it looks like uh now that there's a new special master's been appointed in that case um that uh the hearings will actually start in 2020. And in the... uh, I got some interference there. Uh, And in the meantime, I don't know if you saw this, but the other day, um, Elephant Butte uh, reached the 3% full level, which Uh is lower than, you know, what you had uh, mentioned in your articles. Um, And on top of that, I guess we still don't have an an IBWC commissioner. Uh, Correct. So, <laughs> would would you look at that? I mean, um, well, I'm not going to put you words in your mouth. What do you think? want <laughs> you want to try
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think, you know, the IBWC uh,
1: saw this coming. They've been working together with Mexican officials to, uh, you know, model the Rio brand, uh, and Zoe can, can speak to this some more because I she did the actual interviews with the IBWC folks. Uh, but you know, the IBWC has been planning for these disaster scenarios uh, for a while now. Uh, they employ uh, a lot of uh, smart uh, technical engineers uh, who have. We've seen this coming. Um, So, so, yeah, we are in a bit of a difficult situation because, like you said, uh, uh, the former IBWC commissioner, Ed Rusina, was asked to step down, um, and that slot hasn't been filled, so that is a bit of a hiccup, but uh, the hope is, I think, that the Trump administration will fill his position soon and talks can resume. Um, And it is important to note that, you know, even if you don't have a commissioner, you do have the entire working staff. So the IBWC... Mm -hmm does does uh, depend on, on numerous technical staff uh, and so I'm sure that the negotiations are proceeding and just because a commissioner isn't
2: in place doesn't mean that there's no work that's happening to addressing those situations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's definitely important to emphasize that the IWC staff, a lot of them have been there a long time. And right. Though Mr. Drusina had a really long-standing and friendly relationship with counterpart Mexico, coach or um if the person who's now the acting commissioner has been with the commission, I think, something like 30 years. And the nice thing about that, the commissioner, um, the requirement even for an acting commissioner is that you be a uh, accredited, you know, um, water engineer. You have to have an engineering degree. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the hope is that the staff has, has enough uh, capacity behind it to see it through some of these things. But it's not ideal not to have a, a figurehead, a secure a, a figurehead. These conversations,
0: right? That's a good point. That's a good point. So let me uh, turn to mega droughts. And sure. So I now, Zoe, did you do that that, that article? Yeah, I did. And uh, you worked with the uh, the Tree Ring Lab at the University of Arkansas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who did you work with there?
2: You know what, I'm just, we talked to so many people. Oh, David Stahl, who is a the program, he's been a dendrochronologist for a very long time um, and has like, a bevy of grad students who are all out absolutely by hand um, documenting tree rings in various forests in all over the country.
0: So this is what, you know, I said earlier when we started that, you know, we've been um, in a lot of the same territory together. So uh, the, that tree ring lab um i organized a tree ring study here in texas about 10 years ago um 12 years ago and it wasn't dr stalley but it was his son um who was one of the grad students who did the data collection for us the principal investigator was malcolm cleveland who is now right right. and so uh so Malcolm is now a professor emeritus at Arkansas, but but he and David had done um, dendroclad... Uh, chrono cr- yeah tree ring studies. They'd done tree ring studies. <laughs> yeah, I have to figure out how to edit these things, these podcasts. But but uh, they had done research down in Mexico on uh, Montezuma cypress, and and so. Uh, uh, Dr. Cleveland and I are both geographers and I had met him when I was getting my doctorate. And so I contacted him and I said, well, why don't we do a study in 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 Texas because, you know, all these tree ring studies, including the ones that, that you were talking about in your article, use, uh, for the most part, they use chronologies in Mexico and New Mexico and California and, and, and places that are very far away. And so we went around, it took took a few years, but we went around and sampled, took almost 800 samples um, from about 350 uh, bald cypress trees in central Texas and uh, reconstructed the drought drought, drought cycle back to 1,500, which... You know, prior to that, I think it had been been reconstructed back to 1700. I think Dr. Cleveland had actually done that work. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we found was that, uh, you know, what's happening out west is often different than what's happening here. And that's because, you know, when you look at New Mexico or Arizona or even the interior of Mexico, you know, when you get to here, you've got, of course the gulf uh and so some of the mega droughts in the past you know look like they were they were not happening here but we also found um some droughts in which i think maybe a mega drought pretty close you know about 20 years of of drought from 1697 to 1717 which were, you know, twenty years substantially longer, twice as long as the drought of record in Texas, which started in, in the late '40s and ended in '57, and more and more severe than that drought. And very really
1: interesting.
0: Yeah, and uh, so um, you know, I'm always interested when I see other you know tree ring studies, but but you know, the point is the the studies that you use for your. Article were actually the appropriate ones because the headwaters are in Colorado and New Mexico, and um, you know the 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 area that we studied. Um, you know, say if if you flat fast, fast forward one of those mega droughts to today, um, you know, it's the water consumption here might be different than the conditions in the upper watershed because you might have more locally, you know, available rainfall during that period. Uh, but, but what uh, they were saying in that study um, is really fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, what I worry about is that people really are not prepared here, even though we, we did go through a very significant five-year drought. Um, recently, which ended with a flood in Wimberley, which destroyed my oldest tree in the study. I um, know. Oh, yeah, right there. How old is that tree? Well, we couldn't get to the center of it. We didn't have a a, a tree ring bore that was long enough. But we got back to fourteen twenty six, and we mm-hmm. think the tree was probably a sapling around thirteen eighty. Wow. And You know, it's only one data point, but let me just say this. that The flood in Wimberley, um, you know, that tree survived every flood that came down that watershed from, you know, about 1380 until 2015.
1: Um, Yeah, wow. I mean, and that kind of goes to show you uh, the effects of climate change, right? You have uh, droughts that are severe and are getting more severe and more intense, and you also have rainfall events that are getting more intense, like that Wimberley flood. Um so I think that's a that's a good demonstration of like just how climate change is pushing us forward into uh an era of more extreme weather events. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's remarkable. 1380, huh? Yeah.
2: Well,
0: what I like about yeah. tree ring studies is that, you know, even skeptics on climate change, um, you know, they understand drought. And you know, when they see those results, you know, they don't really have any difficulty accepting them, and so, right. um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that I try to focus on is, is you know, we know that this happened, at some time in the past here, you know, it's always possible we can get another drought like this or or one even worse, even yeah, you know, even though my, you don't know when it would happen, but, and you
2: know, I it Clearly, with El Compute at the level of that, we know we can't do this for even two years. Uh, we can't can't have another winter so dry as the one we had this past winter. Yeah. Uh, so, to Tom.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt y'all. Uh, now, please. I am actually at a at a federal courthouse um, <laughs> trying to report on a trial, um, and I think the jury is gonna. Come back in with a verdict like any moment now. So I do have to jump off this call
0: in a, in a few minutes. Okay. Well, let's just wrap up quickly, and just when interrupt me when when you got to go. Um, okay. So I guess you know I've just got two final questions. You know, one is, um, so has this project uh, uh, encouraged you to look around for some other similar water issues that you could do uh, another. Um, you know, in-depth multi-series uh, investigation on. <laughs> um,
2: I definitely think our editors want to break from such things. <laughs> but given that you know we both have this uh, well acknowledged now, and it definitely made me look at the idea of border water, water as a viable beat for the future. Something that I could jump into without too much upstart research um, for just getting to basic knowledge so i'm definitely interested in doing another collaboration or some kind of thing on border water maybe in a different region uh but yeah certainly nothing in the works yeah yet, yeah nothing in the works yet but yeah my feelings and thoughts are similar to uh,
1: to zoe's uh, i've always been very interested in water and i find uh the, the the legal practices and the management practices around it fascinating so you know um if the right story presents itself and and uh we have the time, and the editors have the interest. Then and, uh, and the grant
0: money. The and the and grant family. money. Yes, <laughs> not to forget that. Okay. Well, well, the last question is uh, before we sign off. Do you have any questions for me? Hmm. Um. I know. I thought that would catch you off guard. <laughs> uh,
1: not really. Um, I've I've followed the text. I've been interested to see all the research that's been published there, so that's a that's a great resource and I believe uh, you were one of the
0: founding members of that journal is that correct that's right it it the it started the way a lot of good things do out of frustration and anger uh-huh so publishing in other journals <laughs> and you know having to do ridiculous stuff um, to get the articles out etc. And so, so we decided, uh eh, we could do better. So. Sure.
1: Yeah, um, so it's a great resource for people like me who are looking to learn more about water.
2: Definitely. I mean, I had as questions for me. I'm probably going to follow up with you about that, that tree that was a sapling in 1390. Mm-hmm. Sounds fascinating. Um, but for another
0: conversation. Great, great. Well, listen, thank you uh, both for being our first official podcast, uh, for Texas Water. And, uh, I'm, you know, still trying to figure out, um, all the, uh, technical aspects of, of, you know, putting the podcast on the web and, and doing all that. But, uh, hopefully here in the next week or two, uh, we'll have that available for the public. And, um, any rate, uh, you've really been uh, great to take time out to do this, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you, you each do individually or if you ever have a chance to work together, what you do collectively. Yeah, that'd be
1: great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us on the
2: podcast. I appreciate
0: the opportunity to talk about these issues further. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Todd. Oh, you're, you're most welcome, both of you. And so... Uh, thanks and uh, uh hope uh, hope it's an interesting uh, trial that you're covering, Navina. Um
1: <laughs> it's an employment discrimination case against T C Q.
0: Oh, well there's no water in that, so I'm No you know. no water. <laughs> Okay.
1: Although the person who was discriminated against who claims he was discriminated against, uh was a hydrologist at T C Q. So there's been some ah, peripheral water stuff that's been brought up about uh, the drought and so on. But uh
0: uh, we'll probably have to edit that out. <laughs> okay. All right,
1: well, thank you. Take
0: care, Todd. You too. Good luck to Okay, bye, Zoe. Thanks,
2: Zoe.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.